Blog Talk Radio. Certificate Jeffrey A. Stewart. It's uh, 21 November, Tuesday, 2017 of the premiere. Uh, great episode tonight Marriage, Family, and Religious Liberty. I know it's uh, for everyone, it's starting to get cold. Thanksgiving's coming. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are focused on, uh, well, maybe some of you guys are already in the, the holiday uh, mode. I think probably it'll be a half day tomorrow for most people. So a little relaxed before all of the Cooking. So my guest tonight is uh, Joe Grabowski, uh, who is the Director of Communications at the National Organization uh, for Marriage, and he's going to be discussing some, some interesting stuff with us tonight. Now, on uh, 5 December, the Supreme Court will hear the oral arguments in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission case, which centers on whether creative businesses can refuse service due to its First Amendment rights of free speech and free exercise of religion in light of public accommodation laws. Now, if you're in the American Solidarity Party, as we are, you know uh, this is kind of an important issue to us. Our, uh, our platform actually contains the following language, and I quote, We recognize that the family is the fundamental unit of every human society. This natural social arrangement both precedes the state and has rights and responsibilities independent of it. We respect the central role of marriage, and fostering lasting family ties and strong communities and believe that the effectiveness of marriage and ensuring the well-being of the next generation depends on the norms of monogamy, sexual exclusivity, and permanence. And, you know, one of the specific bullet points to this, uh, this, this part of the platform is, quote, laws that protect religious institutions, small businesses, and private individuals from civil or criminal liability for refusing to participate in activities contrary to belief in marriage as a secure union of one man and one woman. So that the platform affirms that, and we've got a case coming up which talks about that. So this should be a, a good topic for all of the ESPers out there. So, Joe, welcome to the program tonight. How are you doing, and, and how is Belloc doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing very well, and uh, Belloc, uh, my dog, is taking a nap in the other room. Hopefully you won't hear him bark throughout the podcast tonight. I think you are the only person I know who has any pet named after a great, you know, English literary figure. But I'm, perhaps there's probably some Chestertons out there, I would imagine. I would imagine so, yeah. And I was tempted. I was tempted to to uh, call him uh, Chesterton, but when I picked him up and saw the bulldog in him, I decided he had to be Belloc. Yes, <laughs> definitely very suiting. suitable. Uh, all right, so let's get right into it then. Uh, masterpiece cake shop versus uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So set the scene a bit. What, what do we got going on here? Uh, well, this is a case, as you, as you said, coming out of Colorado, and uh, it, it surrounds a Christian baker by the name of Jack Phillips, who owns a, a cake artistry shop named Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, he, in 2012, was approached by a same-sex couple who requested for their uh, same-sex marriage ceremony a rainbow flag-themed cake. Uh, and feeling that that was in conflict, uh, conflict with his beliefs about marriage, 
uh, based on his Christian religion. He declined uh, to make them that cake. He offered them anything out of his display case, uh, anything that was pre-made. It was just a custom-designed rainbow flag cake that he felt uncomfortable uh, providing for them. Uh, in the end, they were easily able to obtain precisely the cake they wanted for free, uh, as a matter of fact, from another local baker once that other local baker had heard about their story. But in the meantime, they lodged a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which two years later in 2014 found against uh, Mr. Phillips. And in their decision, they likened these views that he held, uh, that, that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, and that he felt uncomfortable participating in a same-sex marriage ceremony, uh, they likened that to perpetrators of the Holocaust, um, which was particularly hurtful to Jack. Uh, his father is actually a World War II veteran who, uh, who was present at the liberation of the Buchenwald uh, concentration camp. Uh, so this was the ruling from the commission. Uh, it stipulated that Jack would have to provide cakes for same-sex marriage ceremonies or otherwise stop making wedding cakes altogether, uh, and they also instructed him to provide uh, re-education for his staff uh, on sensitivity and inclusion and that he would be required to file quarterly reports of uh, compliance reports of that education to the commission. So Jack then appealed that decision. He was ruled against by the Colorado State Court of Appeals and the, the uh, state Supreme Court declined to hear his case. So finally, it's been appealed to the Supreme Court, and that's uh, where oral arguments will be held on December 5th. So as I understand now, he's, he's just no longer making he's no longer making wedding cakes at all, correct? That is correct, yeah. He's, he's gotten altogether out of the business of making wedding cakes in order to comply with this ruling by the commission. However, uh, he hopes that that uh, commission's ruling will be found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, uh, because as you pointed out in your intro, what we have here is actually an interesting case where it's not merely uh, on the front to the free exercise clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which stipulates that the free exercise of religion uh, shall not be interfered with by the government, but also uh, a violation of the free expression or free speech clause of the First Amendment. Jack is an artist. Um, this isn't a guy you know, pouring Betty Crocker cake mix into muffin tins. Uh, you know, this, uh, he's been featured in magazines, on TV shows. Um, he studied watercolor painting uh, and other kinds of textile art classes every time they came up in school. And he views his, uh, his work in the bakery as a form of artistry and artistic expression, hence the name of his shop, Masterpiece Cake Shop. Incidentally, by the way, that Masterpiece uh, in his mind is also a pun because he's trying to, with his business, honor the, the master creator himself, God. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see because this, this idea of public accommodations uh, is running up not only against the free exercise of religion here, but also against whether or not you can compel speech, uh, especially speech that signifies meanings that are tied to the tenets of one, one's religion. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the court rules on this case. You know, not, I'm going off on a tiny tangent here, but one thing I've always wanted to be able to ask, like the the um, the couples in this, is that why 
why would you want to have someone whose heart is not in it uh, produce something artistic for you? Because that, that part just doesn't make any sense to me because clearly, clearly they're not going to be able to give their best work. They're not going to be able to be inspired. Um, and I know that's not really a legal, a legal aspect of it, but I think it speaks to the motivation for the case that it can't really be, in my opinion, for for the reasons that are stated. I, I think it's just uh, simply to to push the ideology down the road. I think so too. And, uh, you know, that, that really gets to, uh, kind of the heart of the matter that, uh, whether or not, uh, you know, how this relates to other cases, the common thread that runs through all of these cases, whether it be florists or, uh, musicians or things like that, um, that have come up and there have been many, many of them that have come up uh, really since Windsor, uh, the Windsor decision, which overturned the federal defense of marriage act, but particularly since uh, Obergefell, you know, made same sex marriage, the law of the land nationwide. We've seen a lot of these cases coming up and the common thread running through all of them is that um, the burden of proof to my mind lies with uh, people to show why this is necessary. Why, what is the compelling state interest here in, in forcing Christians uh, and, and certain business owners to kind of go out of their way uh, to participate in things that, uh, they, as you point out, their, their heart wouldn't be in uh, in the first place? Uh, and I would also challenge those on the other side of the issue, liberals uh, or, or people that just aren't sure about this, turn on the Food Network, especially at this time of year. You know, they're always having these holiday baking uh, competitions and, and the like uh, turn on turn on the food network and watch some of these people making these cakes or, or what have you and tell me that's not artistry tell me that that is not uh, the kind of uh, exercise of, of free expression that we that is precisely what we want protected under our first amendment and I, I think you hit up on some of the difficulty in making that case with folks, because quite often I think this gets framed into um, trying to make parallels with, oh, they refuse to serve them, you know, because they're they're gay, you know, they, they won't even give them food because they're gay, and you know, it's a little more nuanced than I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna cook a meal for you or provide you medical services or something like that. It, it's a little deeper than that. Right, and I think that's an important point, especially uh, as the contours of this cake, but also, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, of this case, but also of other cases that are out there in the pipeline, uh, particularly the case of Baronel Stutzman, the florist from Washington State. Uh, This is an aspect that gets uh, missed a lot in its nuance. These people aren't turned away at the door. Nobody's turned away at the door. Uh, The shops are open. The shops are welcoming. You come in and, and want to buy a dozen cupcakes for your birthday party, uh, there's going to be no problem and no questions asked. Uh, Jack has consistently operated his business at Master Ke- Masterpiece Cakes in accordance with what he believes is a Christian. That means that before this, he's turned down requests from people to make um, anim- anatomically styled cakes, uh, for, for lack of a, a more descriptive euphemism, anatomically styled cakes for a bachelor party or a bachelorette party. This is kind of a fad, apparently, amongst young people these days. Um, he's, declined, he's declined those clients, and they haven't sued on the basis that that is some kind of sex discrimination. Uh, he's also declined to make uh, cakes for Halloween parties because he doesn't feel comfortable you know, making a cake in the shape of a devil's pitchfork uh, as, as a Christian. So uh, 
he doesn't turn people away at the door. And particularly in this case, as, as I pointed out, he offered uh, any of the prefabbed, non-custom decorated cakes uh, in his cake shop. He wasn't saying, I'm not going to serve you because you're homosexuals. He said, I don't feel comfortable using my artistic abilities, uh, lending expression to what I feel would be tantamount to a statement of support of something that runs counter to my religious convictions. So, you know, the same case can be made. I'll, 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 some, I'll bring something a little more um, to the spotlight. Uh, he could simil- similarly refuse to bake a cake uh, for Richard Spencer's group uh, based upon some message they want to put on it because it would go against his beliefs. That's precisely correct, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, when when we consider those uh, types of examples, uh, who knows? I, I don't know what cases are out there. We might not hear about them. Uh, but, but I'm sure there are people getting turned down for all kinds of reasons uh, and that this is something that, uh, you know, this is just within the, the – leaving religious liberty aside, this is just within the free expression uh, principles of the First Amendment. Do we really want to get into a point where we're compelling people to lend their artistry to uh, trying to celebrate a message that, that they have deeply uh, held beliefs against when um, – Again, when there's no compelling state interest that can be demonstrated that there's some kind of systematic uh, or widespread persecution going on in society, and we can maybe talk about some of those different contours, how this differs from other kinds of civil rights-based claims. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I agree that there there are a lot of analogies that you could make to this, uh, and and they're all good analogies. The the bottom line is, um, you know, in in Jack's case, what's most I think insidious about this is what we saw coming up back in the debate over the redefinition of marriage is now coming up again as a talking point in these matters of religious liberty. And that's this stigmatization and uh, this demonization of the opposing side. Uh, The most offensive part of all of this to me is the commission saying that Jack's beliefs and the way that he uh, performed, uh, conducted himself here was similar to uh, the Nazis, the perpetrators of the Holocaust. That's the exact words of, of the uh, of the commission. That's just outrageous. Yeah, and we really yeah, need to put on the brakes as a society and say, is this is this where we want to head as a society in our civil discourse? Now, let's we'll hit upon some of the other civil rights parallels that are brought up, but uh, uh, just some of the other cases that are out there. I mean, the two other big ones I know are the uh, sweet cakes in Oregon. Um, that's a couple that I think you know they ran into the, the same situation with, with having a book of cake, and uh, they've kind of been uh, smacked down, and they're now last I heard operating out of their home uh, in some manner, but they've had to close their shop. And then you had mentioned Miss um, Miss uh, Stutzman and her uh, florists uh, in Washington State. She's been hit real hard. Uh, with fines, and, and I mean, I, I guess it, it could go really, I mean, these numbers are really are really starting to mount in terms of the amount of fines they want to hit her with. Uh, I mean, beyond just yeah, getting rid of Yeah, her case in particular is, is uh, kind of a frightening one, because um, in that case, uh, the state of Washington, the state of Washington took actual punitive uh action against her um and uh she was sued jointly by the aclu and the state of washington 
she was found to be in violation of the state civil rights laws, and she faces uh, the possibility of having to pay nearly a million dollars in legal fees. Uh, it's not necessarily fine money that has been uh, assessed, but she's going to uh, be forced to pay the the uh, legal fees for both the ACLU and the state of Washington. Uh, and this uh, for her, she's a 72-year-old grandmother. Uh, this for her would essentially mean losing her house, her life savings, and certainly her business. That's just uh, that's just outrageous. Okay, now folks, if you want to uh, give, if you want to call in and ask Joe some questions, I guess uh, call in my nine one seven eight eight nine. Uh, 3030-917-889-3030. We can talk to Joe Grabowski, who is Director of Communications at the National Organization uh, for Marriage. Don't be scared. Call in. Joe doesn't bite, uh, but he, he, you know, come prepared. Um, that's all I'll say. Um, let's talk about the civil rights aspect of it, the other, the other parallels, uh, Joe, because I think you're right. Uh, quite often you hear it being compared to the civil rights movement in the 60s uh, uh, for blacks in this country who are being mistreated, um, yeah, compared to just, you know, uh, rights for women. I mean, lots of comparisons. I mean, how, how does that not add up? Uh, well, I would say in several ways. I mean, first of all, you have the aspect that I pointed out before, which is that uh, it's not people being turned away at the door wholesale. Uh, by these particular businesses even. Um, much less is it, is it endemic in society or, or representative of something that's happening kind of in a, in a, in a very coordinated way, which was the, the status quo ante that the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964 was responding to. But in a lot of these cases, uh, in the case of Baronel Sussman, for example, the client was a long time existing customer, somebody that she had provided flower arrangements for in the past for all manner of occasions. Uh, it was when he asked her to make uh, flower, uh, flower arrangements for his wedding, which she understood she normally would, you know, do on site at the, at the venue. Anybody who's had a wedding knows that uh, frequently, uh, you know, florists can be more or less involved, just like photographers, but the ones that get really involved, they might be there to arrange the bouquet uh, right before the ceremony and even pin on uh, the corsages. This is something that they do. She didn't feel comfortable doing that, and this was a friend of hers. This was somebody that she knew intimately and, and as I said, had conducted business with over a long period of time. That's one thing that I just think does not quite line up with what we know of race relations in, in the Jim Crow South. Okay? Uh, the second is that there is a slight differentiation here um, from what is spoken about in, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title II, which is public accommodations. Um, and that has to do with the fact that what we're talking about here is participating in a particular ceremony. It's a particular kind of service offered under a, a, a larger umbrella, as it were. So uh, in all of these cases, uh, these business owners do other kinds of services. They'll provide for birthday parties and everything like that. Weddings are something different. Um, and I think that that's just one of those common sense things that gets lost a lot in this debate. Everybody knows a wedding is a special. Again, turn on the television. Watch a show like uh, they have all these Bridezilla shows. <laughs> we know how uh, concerned people get about their wedding day. 
uh, everybody knows that a wedding is a different kind of occasion. Isn't that the whole point? Isn't that what the whole push for same-sex marriage was about? Right? So uh, a wedding is, is not just a run-of-the-mill, same kind of thing as giving flowers to somebody or just uh, baking a cake for, you know, a, a work holiday party or something like that. And finally, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll note that uh, it's different as to the facts of, of the law as it stands right now. Um, you know, under, under the civil rights law that exists, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity are not covered under, under the public accommodations law universally. It varies from state to state. Some states have uh, what are called SOGI Acts, Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, Non-Discrimination Acts. And those uh, are the states like Colorado where we tend to see a lot of these cases coming up. Other states have things called RIFRAs, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, uh, which are based on a federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was the act that became the precedent for the victory of Hobby Lobby in the HHS mandate case a few years ago. Unfortunately, the federal RIFRA doesn't apply to the states. So unless states have adopted a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, Christian business owners in those states find themselves um, find themselves falling victim to these kinds of onerous lawsuits. Um, but it, it it's different because of the fact that the Civil Rights Act, when when it responded uh, specifically on public accommodations, it specified that discrimination should not be allowed in places like hotels and other places on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. In other titles of the act, it actually does mention sex and gender. It doesn't mention in that act because they recognized back then that there are certain gender spaces in society and that you could be opening a Pandora's box by mentioning sex and gender when you're talking about public accommodations. The recent debates over who gets to use what bathroom uh, show that they were kind of in, uh, you know, they had some foresight in, in very specifically tailoring public accommodations not to cover sex and gender. <clears throat> so those are the similarities. We could also talk about, because one, one final point I'll make uh, is that this is a borrowed tactic, the tactic of comparing what these Christian business owners are doing to, um, to racists in the Jim Crow South is the same thing that was said of traditional marriage advocates back before the Obergefell decision, when, when all of the amicus briefs were being filed and the arguments were being had in the public discourse, uh, it was said that trying to keep uh, same-sex couples from marrying was the exact same thing as trying to keep interracial couples from marrying, which was over right. in Loving v. Virginia. It's a completely spurious argument. Maybe we could talk about that when we get into, uh, if we're going to get into marriage itself in a little bit, we can we can go into that in more detail. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Um, you know, well, let's, well, let's just, I'll ask you then a, a, a follow-on question to that. Um, how would you personally feel then, I mean, I can certainly answer this too, how would you personally feel if uh, there was a business who just decided to say, look, I don't serve homosexuals? Um, would that, I mean, right. I, I, at least me, that'd be something I'd go, no, you can't do that, that's not right. Sure, uh, and I, I would as well. And what I'll say to that is, um, First of all, once again, we're looking at different contours of, of reality. So, so a lot of this stuff, it hits emotionally. When, when you bring up that example, what if there were a business that said this, right? But then when you actually yeah. kind of analyze, well, what would that look like? How would that actually take place, right? For one thing, 
the process of knowing that someone is a homosexual uh, uh, or, or has a homosexual orientation is a lot less obvious, and, and it would seem to be a lot more intrusive and a lot more invasive to, to attain that kind of knowledge of a person uh, and, and a lot more an infringement upon their privacy than knowing that this couple getting married are, are a couple consisting of the same sex. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, there's, there's kind of that level of difference that's important to point out, that when, you know, when people say that this can open the door to more invidious kinds of quote unquote discrimination, um, you know, uh, we have to think of the contours of what that would actually look like and realize that, uh, you know, how, how, how would that kind of be enforced? Uh, it's not even the kind of immutable characteristic like, like race that, that can be very obvious at first sight. The second thing that I'll, I'll respond to that with though is this, and that's uh, a recent study uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of it off the top of my head. It was a study uh, that the Beckett Fund is is touting, and I believe it's called uh, Sex, Drugs, and Eagle Feathers. Uh, your, your listeners can Google it. It's Sex, Drugs, and Eagle Feathers. And what it is is a scientific analysis of religious freedom claims uh, that have that have resulted after the Hobby Lobby decision, because what we were warned about uh, with that decision, what we were right, warned yes. about during the Indiana RIFRA, uh, the Re- Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act debate when Mike Pence was the governor of Indiana, we were constantly warned that this was going to open a door to a Pandora's box of discrimination, and that it was just going to run rampant. And what this uh, study does is actually find that. Uh, these numbers are very, very low. The numbers of actual claims uh, for exemptions um, are very, very low uh, to begin with. So uh, that's the that's the final thing. It's um, I, I I almost want to say it's a false hypothetical because there just simply has not been this wave of you know suddenly people trying to invent religious claims to deny people all kinds of goods and services. It, it, there's no there there. If people can point to some kind of growing uh, trend of discrimination, then, then maybe we should throw on the brakes and retailer things and become a little more nuanced. I think that's the key, though, nuance. Religious Freedom Restoration Act, for example, that's kind of a nuanced policy and law. One of the reasons that it is is because it was done through a legislative branch. But when the courts come in and rule carte blanche in some of these cases, that's where I get scared about pension responses. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break right here. So good stuff, Joe. Uh, we'll be back with Joe Grabowski talking about uh, marriage, family, and religious liberty. If you want to talk to uh, Joe, don't be shy. 917-889-3030. And uh, we'll be right back. Hey folks, Stu here from the Day's Work Podcast. Do you like what we're doing here? Are you interested in political thought and policy that doesn't fit into the typical left-right paradigm? Are you interested in providing a Christ-centered witness in the public square? Or do you support the traditional family of mother, father, and child as the foundation of our society? Do you share our call for the greatest possible autonomy for local governments? Or do you advocate for an economy in accord with the dignity of human work, ordered towards ownership and opportunity? 
Well, you might find yourself at home with fellow travelers like us as part of the Dorothy Day Caucus. We are an independent group of like-minded members from the American Solidarity Party. Find out more about us at our Facebook group, Dorothy Day Caucus ASP, and more about the American Solidarity Party itself at solidarity-party.org. Well, here's something now, if I could press on the McIntyre point a bit, is I think um, modern ethics, like modern architecture and modern art, tends to be rather reductive. Modern ethics would tend to say something like, everyone's free, everyone's equal, everyone's got a right to self-expression as long as you don't hurt anybody else. And that, that seems pretty familiar to our uh, discourse. I would say all that is true as far as it goes, but it's a very minimalistic approach to uh, ethics. The classical Catholic approach is much denser and more textured, where I would affirm everything I've just said, but it would look at things like the integrity and purpose of an act. So it's not simply, I'm free, I'm the same as everybody else, I can do what I want as long as I'm not hurting you. That's sort of modern minimalism. But the Catholic tradition might say, well, okay, but what's the point and purpose of an act? What's the point and purpose, for example, of a sexual relationship? It's not just, oh, here's something I want to do, and it's not hurting you. <laughs> well, okay, that might be true, but what is the sexual act all about? What is marriage all about? And see, what McIntyre laments is that our consensus on those issues has largely evanesced. As a result, we're thrown back onto a minimalist uh, foundation. That's why we can't have a good argument. That's why the Catholic view is often seen as just a form of bigotry or just a form of imposition. You know, you're not respecting my freedom. No, I'm trying to draw you into a richer thought world when it comes to moral questions. We're back here with the Dorothy Day Caucus Days Work Podcast. I came in there a little late. Back uh, back on the Days Work Podcast, I'm your host, Stu. I'm here with Joe Grabowski, Director of Communications at the National Organization of Marriage. We're talking about marriage, family, and religious liberty. You heard there the always erudite Bishop Robert Barron talking about how difficult it is to uh, actually talk about this issue. And I'm sure as we uh, move forward in the questioning, um, Joe, you might be able to pick up on some of the of the good bishop's words there. Um, but it was a good good pithy uh, segment from him. So let's let's actually pivot into marriage itself. I mean, let's talk a little bit about why marriage is actually important for society. Because I think even with the even with the Obergefell uh, decision, I think the actual justification for marriage as a, as a union between a man and a woman really did not get a strong case made for it in, in the public square. Um, so, what, what do you what do you say the purpose of public marriages, and uh, do you think it it got a fair shake out there? Uh, well, no, I certainly don't think that it got a fair shake out there. Um, you know, I think that the uh, the way in which the conversation was conducted uh, at times on both sides uh, was just simply 
a lot less than what our, our public discourse demands. So I think that we all need to be better listeners um, in the first place, and then we also just need to uh, be better arguers in the sense of, um, you know, I think the model arguer for me personally anyway is St. Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, from the Middle Ages who was famous for always building up the objections um, kind of in better words than, than the people that he was arguing against before he dismantled them, you know. But he would try to reconstruct them in, in its best potential terms and then fight that argument at, at its best. And I think if we have a passion for the truth, that, that comes naturally. So unfortunately, no, I don't think that the marriage conversation really um, uh, got anywhere. Uh, and there's a lot, to, a lot of people to blame for that, uh, our political soundbite culture, the media, um, but also just, as I said, it starts with each one of us being better listeners. Why is marriage important for society? Uh, you know, I can answer this in, in kind of the most simple terms. Marriage is a public good. Uh, it, it's evident from a, rev- a quick review of history that uh, mar- the marital relation, the relation between man and woman, um, has always been in, in some ways regulated, some some ancient societies in, in ways more, um, you know, primitive. But uh, over time, uh, especially in the Western law tradition, uh, a body of common law and a body of common sense built up around the regulation of the institution of marriage. Civil marriage laws uh, really kind of started to take off precisely when uh, the church laws and, and moral codes that kind of had regulated the institution for so many centuries started to wane you know, a few centuries ago, and that's when the state decided, you know what, this is an important institution to regulate. Why is it an important institution to regulate? Uh, The only answer for that is intergenerationality. Um, So I would say that, uh, you know, the simplest answer why marriage is important to society is because it is society's way of, of creating and providing for the next generation in the least intrusive uh, and most sensible way. The interest of the state comes primarily from that procreative potential of uh, that uniquely procreative potential of the union of a man and a woman and uh, the fact that we don't want men and women when they come together in that unique bond that has the potential to create new life not committing to one another and taking responsibility for that that life-giving action. That's what marriage does. That's what marriage incentivizes. That's why it's healthy for society. It creates intergenerational stability. It creates stable paths for the passing down through generations of property. Uh, And it also just uh, creates the best environment for kids to grow up in with their own loving mother and father. Okay, so to counter that, how would you answer, uh, you know, if someone came to you and said, Okay, that's good, and I believe that, but why can't we give those same you know, privileges to a, a same-sex couple? Well, I, I think that the chief answer that we need to give there is to, to go back to kind of the fundamentals. Uh, why is the state interested in marriage in the first place? Um, there are a lot of different kinds of relationships in a society that are not equally privileged uh, as marriage. They're not treated as marriage. Um, you can have uh, close widow, widow siblings, sisters who, uh, you know, in their retirement move in together 
uh, and maybe share a home and maybe want to pass on that home uh, when one one precedes the other in death. Uh, and they might, you know, really benefit in their circumstances from modifications to the tax code and all kinds of other things that, that are traditionally packaged with marriage. But you don't see people out there fighting for their right to get married uh, or for their right to have access to kind of those slight benefits that are included in, in uh, the marriage contract and in, in the way that our society treats it. Uh, so what it really boils down to is that there's one type of relationship that is, that is trying to claim um, that status, and that's the romantic uh, sexual adult relationship between two persons. But uh, what has been often pointed out is that even that uh, is different. The romantic sexual uh, potential that that comes up when a man and a woman come together um, is such that it behooves us as society to try to get them to commit to one another for life. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is kind of the society's natural way of preventing having uh, a whole bunch of unfortunate uh, children uh, suffering from, uh, you know, abandonment by their parents or, or people having children out of wedlock and, and uh, especially fathers moving away from them and not taking care of them and being responsible to them. We want those people to unite together. Uh, that conjugal bond, that conjugal nature for marriage is simply not there in any other kind of relationship, including the romantic partnership of two same-sex individuals. Um, this is not in any way to denigrate those other kinds of special relationships any more than it denigrates the relationship of the two sisters that I talked about. Uh, it's simply saying that there's there's no reason for uh, this vast body of public policy and uh, provisions that has been built up around marriage to be extended to other classes that simply don't fit the criteria of the state's interest in marriage in the first place, which is the child-giving potential of, of the union. Yeah, I would... Uh... I sometimes think that the, the difficulty we have in making that case nowadays is the notion of rights uh, has been turned upside down where it's individuals demanding their rights. And, and I'm not saying we don't have rights, but, but I'm saying demanding the rights before their responsibilities to society or why they need those rights have been established. It's, and I think that's part of the reason uh, there's, a, there's a difficulty in people grasping onto what you just said because they see, they don't understand rather that society recognizing traditional marriage is, is for the benefit of society. It really doesn't have to do as much with the individuals who are petitioning to be married. That's right. You know, and to go back for a second, uh, we, we mentioned before kind of the, the similar tactics that were used in the marriage debate as with the religious freedom debate. One of those tactics was to relate marriage, um, we, we constantly heard that marriage is a basic civil right, and they cited Loving v. Virginia, which was the decision that overturned so-called anti-miscegenation laws in the South. Uh, anti-miscegenation re or miscegenation referred to um, – it, it's kind of a racist word in and of itself because it's, it means mixing of species or mixing of kinds, right? Um, so anti-miscegenation laws were laws against interracial marriage. And Loving v. Virginia struck those down, saying that marriage is a basic civil right. But whenever we heard that quote in the marriage debate, we never heard uh, the full quote, which is that marriage is a basic civil right fundamental to our very existence and survival, 
Um, uh, and those, those, that last clause is a very important one. What was also not mentioned is that the words basic civil right in that passage from Loving v. Virginia is a quotation itself, and that quotation is from an earlier Supreme Court decision. And that Supreme Court decision, which never gets talked about, is uh, Skinner v. Oklahoma. I'll just encourage your, your listeners to look it up. Skinner v. Oklahoma was the decision that first calls marriage a basic civil right. And guess what that case was about? That case was about involuntary sterilization of prisoners. So you have to ask yourself, why, what in the heck does, does marriage and, and calling marriage a basic civil right have to do with the involuntary sterilization of, of, of prisoners? And that's because that decision, the full context in which we, we read of the basic civil right, uh, says um, mar- uh, one of the basic civil rights of man Marriage and procreation are fundamental to the very existence and survival of the race. That's, that's the source of everything that was contained in the Loving v. Virginia quote. So Loving recognized that um, marriage is about procreation. Um, it's not about the romantic uh, fulfillment and self-actualization of the desires of, dissolve, uh, of adults. Excuse me. As much as that's relevant to the issue of marriage, as much as certainly... You know, we want spouses to be happy, and it is about being able to be with the one you love. But I don't know about you. I don't want if, – if, if the only state role in marriage is stamping a certificate of approval on my love, I don't want the state involved in that one way or another. I don't want the state saying, your love is good by us. Here's a thumbs up to your love, or your love is bad. Here's a thumbs down to your love. I don't want the state adjudicating who I can love. What I do think it's good for the state to adjudicate is who can be identified as a deadbeat dad. <laughs> and that's the, the essence of the state's interest in marriage. The essence of the state's interest in marriage stems from viewing marriage as a, as a child-centric institution. Now, I did not know that about loving and, and the, uh, the previous decision with Skinner, but right there, yeah, I mean, the, those clauses establish the responsibility for the right, so it's there. And I would say that because we don't understand that, and you were talking about how we see marriage now as just a stamp on our on our affection and our friendship, uh, that's why you're getting the libertarian arguments now that just want to get out of the business altogether because from their point of view, they see it as just, why is the state involved in this at all? Because it's just about who I'm friends with or, or who I sleep with. Um, and, and that's the bad road we've got, we're going down. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, what the libertarians miss, uh, you know, libertarians always like to talk about bottom lines and cost. Um, you know, it's more expensive to, to the state, ultimately, when marriage breaks down. When marriage and family break down, as we have seen, especially in, in particular demographics, um, unfortunately, uh, in certain communities that are disproportionately affected by the breakdown of the family that's happened in the wake of the sexual revolution – we see negative outcomes for children. We see children more likely to become wards of the state, either uh, in, in agencies of care or in prisons. Um, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. We, marriage is uh, the, the marriage-based family, a mom and a dad uh, committed to each other for life in a loving home, raising their own children, is, is simply, you know, that's as small government as you get. So I don't understand why libertarians... <laughs> don't want to uphold uh, marriage because that's, you know, you want to, you want to shrink government, have, have, have the domestic 
sphere as strong as it could possibly be. Yeah, well, it, I was listening to another podcast this evening, and it was talking about these the outbreak of um, these harassment and assault allegations that are coming, you know, across politics, uh, the press, and Hollywood. And the individual was pointing out that you know because we have we have pushed aside the traditional methods of doing things, you know, the traditions and the, and the customs that we had, what we're starting to end up with is actually greater um, new rules and probably the potential for greater government involvement, and it's almost more puritanical. And, and he was giving an example of, you know, before when it came to uh, sexual relations between a man and a woman, there was a system in place, you know, where uh, you, 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 you courted, you you didn't um, you weren't alone together. You refrained from such uh, contact until you were married. There was a system in place to take care of that. Well, now with with that being pushed aside and being deemed not important, now you're getting the puritanical way of doing things. So it's almost like a checklist for for sexual involvement. With you know, can I can I touch your leg right now? Check yes. You know, can I do this now? Check, yes. And we're actually getting exactly what they say they didn't want. And if we had to, right now in society, I think if we had to come up with a social program to take care of children being born to a man and woman, and we put our heads together real smart, we'd probably come up with, in fact, I'd say we'd almost definitely come up with marriage as the best answer and the least intrusive way of doing it. That's exactly right. And also the best way of raising uh, responsible mothers and fathers for the next generation. You know, that's something that just doesn't get talked about that I think, uh, you know, we need to be very frank about in, in, um, in our culture. What happened to all of, all of what we heard over generations as we saw the decline in the family happening, uh, uh, beginning with the sixties from sources, uh, like Barack Obama in his autobiography, uh, Sources like that testify to the fact that the absence of fathers, absentee fatherhood, was a big deal, and it was a problem. Uh, Obama himself said that, that that was a lack in his life. And now we've gone and rede- redefined the institution of family uh, to make it parent one and parent two. And I, I think that, again, uh, it's, it's too much to try to convince listeners of in an hour-long conversation, but I would just say... Just sit down and think of your own mom and dad or, or think of just ideals of motherhood and fatherhood and how those roles are fulfilled in a child's life uh, and recognize that without denigration to either, without saying mom is better or dad is better, recognize that mom and dad bring different gifts and different uh, things to the parenting em- enterprise and that we really want kids to benefit from them. At the very least, the only person, bottom line, the only person who's really going to be able to teach a young man how to be a father one day is a father. And if he doesn't have one, uh, we're, we're just kicking the can down the road. Well, Joe, in, in making this case to people, you, you mentioned as we started this segment that uh, you know both sides perhaps don't listen to each other and both sides probably say things that, that they shouldn't. From the point of view of people who are making the case for why traditional marriage is still important, you know, what are the things you would, would say they, that, that we do wrong, and uh, how would you frame the argument or, or the discussion with, with, with people who don't understand this? 
well, I think one of the first rules of, of really all political rhetoric, uh, um, and actually really all good rhetoric, you know, this goes back to Aristotle, uh, is know your audience. Know to whom you are speaking and know how to frame what you want to say to respond to the felt exigency in, in that room that you're speaking to. Uh, and, and that's really been the problem. Uh, rehearsed talking points are not necessarily going to meet your audience where they're at. So get away from talking points and, and do the harder lifting of understanding the issue in an intimate way such that you can, you can take it and kind of respond in different situations. I think one of the errors that has been made, um, unfortunately, in, in the marriage debate is uh, we, we enabled opponents of traditional marriage to very easily pigeonhole it as a religious-based argument. Uh, and that was very unfortunate because, as a matter of fact, um, as I've been trying to point out in, in our previous discussion, there are a lot of just political, philosophical, governmental uh, psychological, there, there's reasons from all the sciences, uh, without even mentioning God, uh, you know, to, to try to convince somebody of why marriage is important and why it works. Um, so I think uh, not giving people the easy out of saying, well, that's just your belief, or that is just, um, you know, that's just the, the provisions of your particular religion, but I'm not of that faith. Uh, no, we can point out to them that just because faith can inform our attitudes or our opinions in public life, it doesn't mean that the, the conclusions that we reach with the aid of faith are wrong. Uh, and an example that I'll point out to this is one of the things that, that began to be regulated in the marital institution in the early Middle Ages um, by church teaching was consanguinity uh, in certain degrees of family relations. So in other words, if you were blood-related to somebody by, by certain degrees, you were not allowed to marry them. And that was simply a statute of canon law. It was not uh, in the practice of other, other religions. It was not in the practice of other societies that we know about. This was, this was a kind of an innovation of church law. You can't marry uh, your, your, uh, somebody within a certain level of, of consanguinity. And lo and behold... This is long before the age of genetics. <laughs> you know, lo and behold, we come to discover that uh, uh, consanguinity and, and so-called inbreeding, uh, now with what we understand about uh, genes, uh, can lead to undesirable outcomes. It can lead to undesirable outcomes and uh, health hazards for, uh, for children conceived uh, by such couples. So the law, which still stands on the book as a civil law today, laws against uh, marriage in, in certain degrees of consanguinity, um, just because it came from the church doesn't mean it's a bad law. And science has uh, proved that the church was onto something there. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, I guess to, to, to affirm what you're saying, I've, I've watched too many times where people have argued themselves in a hole for the opponents just to dismiss them. Going, well, of course you think that, you know, you're Christian, and then that's it. And, and no further ground is made. And the discussion's over, effectively. Yeah. Okay, well, let's yeah. take a, another quick break. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, we can move on. Well, we're going to we're going to go to a break, but if you want to finish up that thought. Oh yeah, I, I was I was just going to say that uh, early on, NOM, uh, the National Organization for Marriage, we we formulated some talking points and used uh, focus groups and 
all kinds of studies to do this. And one of the most effective talking points and also something that I think most people would just kind of uh, agree with is that it's not really our concern um, what uh, anybody wants to do in in their own relationships or in their own privacy. Um, You know, I I don't care what you do with your life. Uh, That's not kind of what I'm trying to to do with uh, marriage laws and things like that. I I might care out of fraternal care for you, but uh, I'm not going to try to legislate against you trying to be in a certain relationship with somebody. What I am saying is that you can't redefine this institution for all of society. Uh, And that was the other thing that got missed early on. Uh, We're not simply talking about opening up an institution that has always existed to include new classes of people. We're talking about fundamentally restructuring what our understanding of that institution requires and what it is. It is a redefinition of marriage. It is, and I don't think that the the burden should have been on those wanting to change it to justify the change. And I think, unfortunately, it got put on the side of those defending marriage to justify why it shouldn't be changed. And that's an, that's an impossible uh, argument to make. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and take that break and we will be back here uh, shortly. Hey folks, Stu here from the day's work podcast. Do you like what we're doing here? Are you interested in political thought and policy that doesn't fit into the typical left, right paradigm? Are you interested in providing a Christ-centered witness in the public square? Or do you support the traditional family of mother, father, and child as the foundation of our society? Do you share our call for the greatest possible autonomy for local governments? Or do you advocate for an economy in accord with the dignity of human work, ordered towards ownership and opportunity? Well, you might find yourself at home with fellow travelers like us as part of the Dorothy Day Caucus. We are an independent group of like-minded members from the American Solidarity Party, Find out more about us at our Facebook group, Dorothy Day Caucus ASP, and more about the American Solidarity Party itself at solidarity-party.org. Mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. Mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. Most people, I think, believe that to be the case based on their experiences with their parents and their mothers and fathers, um, that moms and dads are different. Um, One of the ways that we can kind of see that is if you look at a lot of social science evidence, you see that the gender of parents matters when uh, father absence is having a different impact on children than mother absence. That father absence has a different impact on boys than on girls. Okay, so gender must matter. Gender must matter. There are a lot of reasons to think that gender matters. But you can see that what's happening here is to say that mothers and fathers are interchangeable. Oh, the kids will be fine as long as they have two parents who love them. It doesn't matter whether they have a mom and a dad. All that data, Dr. Morse, doesn't really mean that. It really just means they need two parents. It doesn't doesn't matter whether they're biologically related, whether they're male, whether they're female. You're just confusing all these things. Well, no, the reason it looks like we're confusing things is because we have something that's integrated, something that integrates biology and sex differences in marriage. And back with Joe Grabowski, Director of Communications from the National Organization of Marriage. I'm Stu, your host here on the Day's Work Podcast. We're talking marriage, family, and religious liberty. 
And that was uh, Dr. Uh, Roback Morse, Jennifer Roback Morse of the Ruth Institute, echoing what uh, what Joe had said earlier about uh, about mothers and fathers and the unique role they play uh, to their children. Uh, Joe, uh, this issue, marriage itself, you know, we are a a well, you know, the American Solidarity Party is a a pro-life for the whole life party. We say that a lot. We talk about the um, consistent life ethic, um, and, and, and we believe it. Uh, how does marriage play into that? I mean, because a lot of times I, I, things are thrown in there, like, well, this is a pro-life issue. This is a pro-life issue. Well, how's marriage a pro-life issue? Great question. And, um, you know, I wish that that's something that uh, more more people recognize that it is a pro-life issue. I go down to the March for Life every year in Washington, D.C., and I, I see all these people marching in the streets, and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, we also hold our own March for Marriage in uh, the summer now to commemorate the Obergefell uh, decision and our commitment uh, to the truth of marriage. Um, I'll tell you what, if it was attended... Uh, you know, 5% as well as, as the, the March for Life uh, this year, we'd be we'd be thrilled with it and off to a great start uh, because people just don't realize this connection. So uh, at the most basic level, it's a pro-life issue uh, because of the tactics that were used in getting us to the place that we are. And, and basically, uh, the uh, the redefinition of marriage has the same pedigree. It comes from the same ideologies and, and the same movements of the sexual revolution um, that, that got us uh, first into a, what uh, Pope John Paul II called the contraceptive mentality, uh, then to a permissive uh, sexual morality, and then finally to a, a, a very you know, a positivist view of, of what things are and, and the ability to simply redefine something out of existence. So in the same way that uh, you can look at a fetus and call it a clump of cells, um, you, can, you can look at a relationship that does not, uh, does not match the conjugal criteria of what marriage is, and you can call it marriage. So that's the first point. Uh, it's related to pro-life issues in that way. Also, you know, pro-life for the whole life means, uh, I, I should hope, caring for the welfare of, of children, and kids do best with a mom and a dad. Um, Study after study, all the social science supports this, this fact. Uh, kids do best when, when raised in a loving home, um, ideally by their own biological parents. Um, and this should be at least normative for society. We understand that there are always going to be unfortunate cases uh, in, in which uh, this simply can't be done, and there are going to be breakdowns and, and exceptions to, to the rules. But the exceptions cannot become the new rule. Uh, and they can't disprove the, the normative function that those ideals have on us, that, that when men and women create children, uh, they raise those children. Um, related to that, obviously, is that when the marital ideal breaks down and, and the, the notion that you, uh, you know, whether you, you know it from biblical wisdom, whether you know it from natural law, or whether you know it from Frank Sinatra, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes mom and the baby charge, um, you know, uh, if that ideal is not instructed in, and, and inculcated and passed down, that's when you have, uh, I should think, higher instances of abortion and higher instances of, of the felt need for abortion when, when fathers abandon their responsibility for having conceived a child. Um, 
you know, uh, so marriage and, and sex uh, being at, in its proper place within marriage are good social norms. They're not just uh, tenets of, of most of the world's religions. They are. Uh, and when all the world's religions agree about something like that, uh, like they agree on murder and, and thievery and other things, that uh, they agree that there's, you know, a marital ideal and that sex belongs there as, as a proper activity, we should pay attention to those kinds of insights. Uh, also, what I said before about intergenerationality, marriage uh, in a marriage culture inculcates in people's minds an intergenerational understanding of society, and so that also connects to the whole life ethic on the other end, right? Uh, uh, ideally, people would be caring for uh, the previous generation as well as taking care of the next uh, when the time comes to do so, but instead what we see are our, our, our elderly being often shipped off uh, and, and kind of outsourced to other people to care for them. Uh, well, we're, we're now raising a new generation where, where people might not even know who their grandparents is. Uh, their grandparents are. And that gets to the final way I think that uh, uh, marriage is a pro-life issue. Uh, it, it's sensitive, it's difficult to talk about, but it's an unavoidable subject. Traditional marriage is also bound up with natural procreation. And deviations from traditional marriage are bound, out with de- bound up with deviations from natural procreation. What I mean by that is that IVF and surrogacy, uh, commercial surrogacy, Contract surrogacy, these things are on the rise, um, and there are, for at least a lot of, of, of pro-life ethicists, uh, the, the number of discarded embryos or, or embryos sitting in freezers out there uh, that these processes are bringing about is, is as direly concerning as the abortion epidemic. Um, so in, in so many ways, I would say uh, marriage is a pro-life issue uh, because marriage is the cradle of life. And, and uh, we need to get back to uh, putting the context for new life um, and the giving of new life in marriage. That's a very, very good answer. I mean, I had some questions I was going to ask you as you were saying it, and then you just kept uh, you kept going. You answered all my questions, so I don't have any follow-on for that. So, so well done, my friend. Um, <laughs> good to hear. Yeah, yeah, very, very thorough, very thorough. Well, let's. Uh, you know, so here we are. We're at a crossroads then, I think. So, um, you know, the Obergefell decision happened. We can't deny that. Um, you know, is is it over? Or, you know, where, where do we go from here? Well, I wouldn't say it's over uh, any more than I think. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think, first of all, I understand the temptation to say that it's over. Uh, but I think that that temptation would have existed in uh, – 1977 as well, uh, a few years on past uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, And if you would have told anybody back then uh, at those first uh, marches for life, which uh, in D.C., which brought uh, less than 10,000 people, that one day, uh, you know, possibly over half a million on, on a freezing cold blizzarding day in January would be marching the streets of Washington, a lot of them young people. Uh, to support the right for life, um, I think they would have told you that's that's crazy. This is hopeless. But that's that's the work that got done in a generation. My hope is that this doesn't take a generation. Um, and so, uh, I wouldn't lose hope, 
the, the battle isn't over because of Obergefell, but it is going to take a lot of work on our part. It's going to take witnessing to the truth of marriage. One of the ways that we do that is simply living it out, living out the marital ideal in our own lives and uh, raising our children to do the same. Uh, as of immediate concern, uh, one of the ways uh, that we can benefit the long-term fight to restore marriage to our, our law and our culture is these religious liberty issues. Um, I hope that your listeners might became uh, a little more aware of the vital, vital importance of religious, proactive religious freedom wrestle, uh, uh, legislation. The Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, as a matter of fact, aren't even in and of themselves sufficient. They need expansion upon. Uh, at, at NAM, we support a thing called the First Amendment Defense Act, uh, which was introduced in the previous Congress. It never went anywhere. We're hoping that it will be reintroduced in this Congress, although uh, nothing seems to get anywhere in this Congress. So, um, you know, but we we do need this kind of legislation. And as I pointed out, uh, the RIFRA at the federal level doesn't doesn't uh, apply at the state level. So, you know, I know one of the principles of of this party, the American Solidarity Party, is the uh, the local uh, and trying to focus on the local. Um, people need to be on guard about what kind of religious liberty legislation there is in your state, and more concerningly, what kind of religious liberty legislation is absent in your state and uh, what kind of so-called SOGI legislation might be present, sexual orientation, gender identity um, things. Because if we want to restore a marriage culture and raise our kids to, to activate a marriage culture for the future, that's going to be increasingly difficult as the culture moves away. And if the state is making it more difficult for us to live out our beliefs on this stuff, um, that that does become a very dire situation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, any other? You know, I, I had a I had a question here, and you just kind of you kind of answered it. But I I'll just tip my hand uh, and I'll ask you what you think about it. And maybe the National Organization for Marriage has uh, gone into this. So this was not one I, I necessarily prepared you for. Um, the idea of covenant marriages. Um, and, and maybe not the, the stuff that's on the book itself now, but has anyone talked about the notion that, you know, if we're going to redefine marriage, well, couldn't a new marriage be thought up by the state that is much stronger, that's actually more permanent, and actually has some some benefits in it that are absolutely tied towards the responsibilities of being a parent? And maybe that's a way to, to grow marriage you know, traditional marriage into something new for, or, or, or better than, than what we had before for uh, a, a man and a woman to come together? Well, I think the, the idea uh, has merit. Uh, some of the immediate concerns with it would be, you know, um, kind of accepting that marriage by, by needing a, uh, you know, a qualifier or an adjective to describe it, that it becomes somewhat of a parochial issue, uh, prima facie, right? It's automatically assumed to be kind of a belief for certain kinds of people. And uh, that also then smacks of the kind of uh, exclusivity or club atmosphere that was falsely alleged of the, of the institution of marriage uh, as, it, as it was previously. So I think there are concerns with that kind of approach, but I, I think at the same time, 
we uh, I'm open. I, I can't speak for uh, the people that I work with or other other social conservatives working in the marriage movement. Um, but I think that I, I'd be open to any kind of experimentation and any kind of um, creative thinking that we can do as long as the goal is the same. I think that uh, that's that's one thing that marriage reminds us is that we're uh, people who are oriented towards the ends of things and how the end of things um, defines what it is, the final cause, the, the teleology, if you will. Uh, we know what marriage is for, you know, and that's that's why we hated to see marriage redefined because it, it corrupted our understanding of what marriage is for as a culture and as a society. I'd be open to all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of proposals like that being explored, uh, but I guess one one kind of caveat or, or warning I would apply to it is just that uh, I don't want people to lose um, lose faith in in the idea that we might be able to restore the the thing whole cloth uh, to our cultural understanding. Uh, it might not seem as though that's that's uh, anywhere on the horizon for us to do, but I think that we can be surprised by how quickly. Uh, sentiments and moods can change, and I think that people are going to begin waking up to the reality that, uh, uh, you know, these things are these things that seem maybe stuffy. Um, we talked about in the last the last segment about coming along and redefining something without necessarily even understanding what it was for in the first place. G.K. Chesterton uses the metaphor of a gate. Says there's two kinds of revolutionaries. And one revolutionary comes up to a gate and he says, I don't know what this gate's here for. I'm going to remove it. Uh, the other kind of res- revolutionary comes up to the gate and says, I don't know what he- this gate is here for. And I better find out before I think about removing it. Um, because he might be letting the lion out, you know. And we've torn down a lot of gates <laughs> in our time here. Yeah, and I think so the way you answered that, I think, you kind of have the same feeling I I do as well. I I even don't necessarily like the name covenant marriage, but I found the idea interesting. But I don't think it's been fleshed out yet. Uh, but it, the the weakness really is the fact that it it sort of signals a giving up on the fact that we we might be able to overturn this and get it restored. Yeah, yeah. All definitely, right. I, I I worry about that. <clears throat> All right, so one last question before we close, because uh, before before the show started, I got this question in from uh, from Zeb Bocelli, Zebulon Bocelli, who you guys I'm sure remember was uh, was my first guest when we started this podcast. He's right now uh, recording his podcast, which is the Wayward Podcast, W E Y W A R D Wayward Podcast. You can find that on uh, iTunes. Um, it's, but he wanted to be able to get a question in tonight, and so I told him, sure, Zeb, I'll, um, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So here's his question for Joe. Um, I almost, it's almost like a Karnak bit, uh, but not quite. Um, so Zeb writes, um, so Joe, like to know what you think of the prospects are for attracting social conservatives to the American Solidarity Party and what the best ways are to do that. And as a follow-on to that, how do you, quote, convert them to our more, quote, liberal or progressive economic and regulatory policies so that we don't become the GOP light as some fear? And uh, I'll, I'll say that the reason I like this question for, for Joe is 
he doesn't know this yet, but uh, I also plan to have him on to talk about distributism eventually. In fact, someone told me he can he can give me a good talk about Hudge and Gudge. Uh, so uh, we'll see if that happens down the road. But he might be able to he might be able to talk a little bit about that in this question here. Yeah, you know, I think I can, and uh, I I think uh, it's a great question, first of all, from Zeb, and I think uh, the approach that I would take is. Um, Kind of the the you know the the old telephone game or the or the call down the line game, in, in a way, but also um, maybe a better analogy or metaphor for it would be introducing kids to different foods. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you go to the pick your pick your low hanging fruit first of all. Go go to people who are feeling disenfranchised. Look, there's a lot of people out there in in this country who. Um, went along with uh, some of uh, some of the stringent liberal, uh, by, by liberal I mean economically liberal, uh, by, by radical kind of libertarian economical, uh, you know, small government all the time and, um, you know, no regulations whatsoever. Those kinds of attitudes towards economics, um, you know, they went along with that precisely because of their commitment to values that the party that was headed towards those those economic realities uh, was was the only party uh, supporting. Um, they came along with the package, from, basically. From, yeah, I'm from you know I'm from Central Pennsylvania. I'm from the coal regions of Pennsylvania, and you know I, I feel like that place embodies that old saying that uh, there's. There's a lot of people uh, here, so-called blue dogs, and then there's a lot of people who maybe have switched over, but the way that they put it is that they didn't leave the, the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left them. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the real target, target audience. Uh, and I think that those, those folks, um, they'll have that answer better uh, than, than I would have. Um, I, I tend to travel in, in very quixotic uh, politically thinking circles. So I don't know. I don't know if I could tell you how, how, to, uh, how to speak to your most strident uh, con- conservative thinkers without uh, having the tendency to shout at them, which I tend to do. Um, so uh, I think that what, what needs to be done is, yeah, you, you make friends with people who have friends, and maybe they, they say to their friend, hey, I know you're not really into this thing, but come along for a meeting. And then they, they meet people that they like. Uh, I think that that's the organic way that the party needs to grow. It'll make it a stronger party in the end. And I think that that model for our politics would just be healthier anyway uh, because it would start with relationship. It would start with people hashing out and finding out that they actually agree about a whole lot of stuff, um, you know, rather than this this notion of checking boxes uh and and looking down a list of you know um the 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 poll survey answer approach to politics shares my values check et cetera on down the line uh make it relational again make it make it what uh what I think the most compelling politics is okay well that is all the day's work for tonight and uh, thanks Joe for being a part of the show and I I do want to have you back again I think there's a bunch of topics we can talk about uh, uh, like I said I want to do an episode on Hudge and Gudge you know I'll tell you later who who dined you out on that um, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd be thrilled it'd be a pleasure 
Okay, well, that's good. So, folks, uh, thanks for uh, joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, shoot again for two weeks from now. Don't know who the guest is going to be quite yet. I have some things in the works, but uh, we'll talk to you then. Have a blessed Thanksgiving, and uh, I guess we'll see you uh, in two weeks. And uh, Whispering Jack, go ahead and take us out of here. My way, you'll go your way. Praise rhythm from now on, we're through. Here's where we have a showdown. I'm too high hat, you're too low down. Praise rhythm, here's goodbye to you. They say that when a highbrow meets a lowbrow, walking along Broadway, soon the highbrow he has no brow, ain't it a shame? And you're to blame. What's the use of prohibition? You produce the same condition. Praise rhythm, I've gone crazy too. Now I feel like the Emperor Nero when Rome was a very hot town. Father Knickerbocker, you'll have to forgive me. I play while your city burns down. Through all its nightlife, I fiddle away. It's not the right life to think of the pain. And someday I will bid it goodbye. I'll put my fiddle away and I'll say, Praise rhythm, here's the doorway. I'll go my way, you'll go your way. Praise rhythm, from now on we're through. Here's where we have a showdown. You see, I'm too high hat, you're too low down. Praise rhythm, here's goodbye to you. They say that when a highbrow meets a lowbrow, walking along Broadway, soon the highbrow, he has no brow, made in the shade. Well, you're to blame. What's the use of prohibition? You produce the same condition. Praise rhythm, I've gone crazy too. Broadway. Soon the highbrow, he has no brow, ain't it a shame?